Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardawar, and this week I'm joined with our other senior editor. We have many, Daniel Cooper from the UK. Hey, Dan. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, Hello. thanks for having me back. Dan has kicked out Sherlyn, uh, who, yep. who, who needs a desperate vacation. So Sherlyn had to do a lot of work over the past few weeks. She basically got all those Samsung reviews one after another. So we, we all forced Sherlyn to take a break, and we took away her computer and her internet. So I think she's okay. Um, but she'll be back next week. So sit tight for that. Uh, we'll be talking about some news. Um, you know, some of the news we missed over the last two weeks. And also stick around for the end of this episode. I'll have a short interview with Neil Blomkamp about his next movie, Demonic, and uh, how he's using um, basically virtual backgrounds on that thing. As always, if you're enjoying the Engadget podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes. That's always super helpful. You can also drop us an email at podcast at Engadget.com. Uh, send, you know, send us your feedback, Q&A, anything like that. That's always super helpful. And you can also join us typically every Thursday around 10 a.m. Eastern uh, for our live stream. Uh, you'll get to see behind-the-scenes action of the show, and we'll do more Q&A there, too. So sometimes we get to do hands-on with products. Um, so, yeah, stick around for that. So, Dan, we're just going to get right into the news because I feel yes. like um, as, a, as, a new, as people who write news, it kind of, like, irks me when we can't talk about something for two weeks and we have this whole backlog of things. So we didn't have a show last week. Um, everybody took a break and everybody deserved the break. Uh, now we're into full swing. Um, one of the things we're getting ready for this fall is uh, is new iPhone season, the iPhone 13 or whatever the hell it's going to be called. Uh, I, I will put money that it won't be called iPhone 13. I given don't the... think it will be called the iPhone 13, yeah. uh, the iPhone 13 either. And someone, a very yeah. prominent journalist, called me out on this mm -hmm. on Twitter uh, but I, I, I really feel strongly that I don't think Apple would, would yeah. kind of would tempt fate like that. There are well, also there are so many cultures around the world where thirteen is a bad, you know, bad number. It's totally avoided. Uh, you, if you live in a uh, apartment building, you probably don't have a thirteenth floor. Most hotels don't have thirteenth floors, so it's stuff like that that I think will keep them away from it. But uh, I guess we'll see. One of the craziest rumors I saw over the past few weeks, though, is uh. Uh, an analyst, uh, Ming-Ching Kuo, said that uh, Apple is working on bringing satellite connectivity into the, the next iPhone, which to me is wild. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen a satellite phone, but they're typically like big, rugged things. Uh, if you watch any of those like nature shows, sometimes people have them because it gets you the basics of phone connectivity when you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, but to think of that in something that's like a sleek iPhone, to me, is pretty wild. Did you have any thoughts on this, Dan? 
Do you know what? I've got I've got two thoughts. My the techno optimist part of my brain says, <laughs> isn't it amazing that in in the better part of a decade we've gone from you know the first iPhone which didn't even have three G. Yeah. And now we're at the point where if this comes true, obviously, we're going to have, um, you know, these absolutely kind of ridiculously thin phones that can do satellite communications. And that's we'll see. Yeah. A, a, an extraordinary <laughs> achievement. The uh-huh. other part of my brain obviously thinks that this is if it if it does come to fruition, it feels very much like the narrowest niche of a narrow yes. niche in terms of who it will appeal to. I know I get why, mm-hmm. because there are certainly in the US, if you're outside of the, the major kind of the major sort of population areas, uh, you may not have reliable cell service, but you're, you're marketing a phone mm-hmm. to the entire population of the earth at this point, And you're saying, well, you know, for the, for the people who are sort of dotted around spend, you know, upwards of a thousand dollars so that you get this, feature and if they're going to lead with that i feel mm-hmm. like it's it, it may not necessarily appeal to everyone who you know can get service on this on the subway and may not be worrying about whether they can get service at the top of a mountain it's uh yeah it's it's tough like i'm sure apple could figure this out we have the tech for it i hear <laughs> like you know the, there are qualcomm chips that can enable sat, uh, satellite connectivity but to to be clear what it is is it's just making calls. I think I think it can do text, but it, this isn't like heavy data. This is you're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, you're stuck uh, under an avalanche or something, and uh, you need to call for help. And you need a phone that can actually get some sort of signal to get a call, so you could call emergency services. But in America, hey, yeah, that, think that's about, important. Think about the marketing of this though, because in mm-hmm. the same way that it only takes four or five people to get like a red light on their Fitbit and they go to the hospital and it turns out that they were minutes right. away from a heart attack. All right. you need is one or two people <laughs> saved from near death in an avalanche. And yeah. you can basically say, well, you know, the iPhone, it's it's not just a bougie toy. It saves lives. It did it. Hey, if, if they can make that happen without like raising the cost of the phone and also without like, <laughs> it would have to be another service you subscribe to like this wouldn't be part of your uh verizon or t-mobile or at&t service like uh there are satellite phone companies that offer separate services so it would have to be part of that uh yeah in the u.s it's like if you if you go to the middle of the woods but like really far into the middle of the woods or up a mountain or something there it's not places where people actually go unless you're like vacationing so i don't i don't know how realistic this is and also, um, I do feel like we're still trying to figure out like what the hell is going on with 5G. Uh, the rollout in America has been kind of, kind of crappy. Um, not sure how it's looking on your side, Dan. It's The funny thing is, in, in the UK, it happens very slowly and then all at once. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I'm still on a, an older iPhone, so I haven't seen it. But my wife, who's got the, the iPhone 12, it's very weird because we're in quite a small city comparatively speaking and all of a sudden she's getting 5g notification you know so <laughs> it's switching over and she's sort of baffled because we haven't heard anything yet but i think we are mm-hmm. now we're at the point where it's no longer news when an area gets 5g it doesn't we, really mean anything either like i don't no, know if you doesn't. guys have noticed any major speed improvements that's a no. that's a thing we'll be talking about <laughs> moving <laughs> forward actually related to this folks i don't know if you all have seen the news but uh 
We are no longer part of Verizon Media Group. We are now Yahoo. Our company has officially been sold to Apollo. Is it Apollo Media Group? Um, it's been sold to a private holding group. We are rebranding as Yahoo. Uh, we can disparage Verizon as much as we want now, I think. Is that how it works? Uh, but yeah, I... we'll be talking about 5G across America and the world. But yeah, th things are changing over here. Who knows what the next iPhone will bring? Uh, I'm like personally not... Not super excited for this one, but uh, I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, there's also a bit of other Apple news. Um, they announced late last night that they're going to allow some media apps to link outside of the App Store for payments, which is apparently it's just one link, and it's only like certain types of media apps, but it's something. Uh, right now, if you like try to if you download the Netflix app on your phone, for example, you can't sign up for Netflix service from within ios because that would go through apple's processor they take a you know what 30 percent chunk uh yeah. that's been the whole story uh you know for now now apple i believe it was in response to the japan fair trade commission like the, there have been a lot of complaints from developers about how apple is handling the app store this is like one one minor concession it's like <laughs> one link Please, you could go over here, uh, go to the internet, the dirty worldwide internet, and uh, pay for a service there. Um, that's something, at least. Yeah. It's it's savvy. It's savvy. It's It feels very Apple in so much that they've waited until just before the world's regulators forced them to do something. Uh, because, you know, I think that governmental pressure is coming. And it's coming very quickly. Yes. Uh, and they've done, at the very last minute, they've done less than the bare minimum with the, you know, the A, it's only reader apps. B, it's a very limited, uh, still very heavily prescribed uh, method of communication. But it's probably just enough mm -hmm. that means that, um, so you know, for instance, in the, in the EU, we've got Spotify basically saying we want a more direct relationship with our customers than Apple. Apple is getting in the way. Well, now... Apple can say, well, no, we're not, you know, we, without, con <laughs> right. without conceding a single thing, right, they can right. say, no, 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 our position has evolved. Now you can, you can access it. You know, you we have a link. Have trust. You have a link. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it's in a way, it's the sort of evil genius that you have to applaud mm -hmm. whether regulators do or not is another story, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. And, uh, you know, I, I've seen people are still making the argument that, Hey, this is Apple store. They could do whatever they want. I do think like, when something becomes so dominant as the App Store has become, you know, Apple is no longer a bit player in this market. You know, they are they are a driving force. I do think like there are certain points where these platforms need to be forced to open up uh, if they're big enough and to to actually innovate. These things need to happen. Um, there's also a little bit of Apple news. I saw Gabriel in the chat drop this, uh, but they are allowing digital licenses um, in a couple states. George is going to be one of them. I believe Arizona is going to be one of them. Uh, that's just another piece of news that's interesting. I think it's really only relevant uh, when you're in the airport because the TSA will be able to like, you'll be able to like tap it with your Apple wallet. You'll be able to tap your phone on the thing and they'll see a digital version of your license. Um, this isn't a thing where you should be handing your phone over to a cop or something. Uh, but I don't know. D does that sound appealing to you at all? Dan, like no. having the backup no. on your phone? No, <laughs> no, no. no, no. Anyway, I, mm -hmm. I'm one of these people who uh, I'd never buy a smart lock for the, for the simple reason mm. that I want. I, I would never use 
uh, my phone as my primary way of opening my car. I want it to be that if I get mugged or it smashes mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. it runs out of battery, I am not locked out of my entire life. I like sure, having... Sure. Um, this this has blown up in my face once when um, I was I was coming back from IFA and I had real train tickets and mm-hmm. I was getting off the platform at Heathrow Airport and my my train ticket home, which was you know sort of probably the equivalent of about one hundred and ten dollars, mm-hmm. fluttered out of my wallet and kind of onto the <laughs> rail and then got smashed by the train as Aww. it came in and they wouldn't print me a they wouldn't print me a, a repeat That's... because that's a fraud prevention thing but of course what that meant was they could they could see the charge in your credit card and be like okay you just yeah. bought a ticket yeah they could yep. but this is this is britain you know there's, it, sounds, there's... it sounds like britain customer service i know people who uh <laughs> i know the buses don't stop for you you know really yep. they will force you to run and get up to the i know people who've been left in the side of the road in the middle of nowhere uh like country <laughs> country towns because uh, they didn't have the appropriate papers to continue the trip to france and whatnot so yeah British customer service. Gotta love it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you felt, uh, because yeah, you lost your paper ticket. That was a bad thing. I, you know, things like that, like train tickets and whatnot, especially when I was around New York and when I take flights, like that's all on my phone, but I do have the paper backup. And to me, like that is just like an important piece of mind thing. So I like to be able to have the backup filed away somewhere in case my phone fails. But typically I just want to show the phone. I think that's generally more convenient. Um, But do you have like a privacy uh, concern here by having official government ID on your phone, Dan? Do you know what? I I don't so much as just the idea that that I like... I, I just don't want to be reliant on a single device. I feel right, like, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's always that risk that we put our entire lives on our phones and then as soon as, as, soon as <laughs> it kind of reaches this privileged position in our lives mm-hmm. and it breaks or we lose it or anything else. And you can sort of imagine kind of running around asking people for for their phone and they think get away from me you're a crazy person and then before yep. you know it, it you know your whole life gets turned upside down so i quite you know i quite like having not all of my life some but not all of my life yeah it's a, it's phone. a nice balance i think like having apple wallet in general has been really nice like especially now during the pandemic it's like um when i'm going to a store i don't want to like fumble and pull out my credit card and swipe in this reader also you cannot trust like credit card readers because people like to put like the hacky the hacky card readers in there too. So it's like, if you just tap your phone and that's a digitally encrypted signal that doesn't even show your real credit card number, that is always going to be safer. Um, so in that respect, it's nice to have a little bit of connectivity, but I hear you, Dan. Um, listeners, definitely let us know what you think about putting your license plate uh, or your license, your driver's license on your Apple wallet. Uh, is that something you're going to be using? Let us know. Uh, I think... Other bits of news we saw, Microsoft announced a couple things over the last couple of weeks. Um, a Surface event on September 22nd, that was this week. And also that is two weeks before Windows 11 is officially launching on October 5th. Any, like, is are you excited for this, Dan? Have you seen uh, Windows 11 in action yet? Is I haven't that... seen it in action. I've, I've okay. read all the previews and... Edingadget.com. Yeah, and it got Yes, that I've lost the ability to speak. It's great. You put a microphone in front of me, and I just start um, burbling. Um, I I can't find myself getting enthused about Windows Eleven. I I mm-hmm. get all of the fact, you know, all the quality of life updates, but I don't really feel as if it's as earth shattering. It may, you yeah. know, maybe I'm just. It's not earth shattering. Yeah, no. yeah. 
it's a uh, it's nice it's a nice change of pace like i have it right now on a surface laptop 4 that is sitting next to me i'll be testing it more on my main desktop soon uh but yeah it's here's the thing folks windows 10 was really good windows 10 yeah. like totally fixed everything that was wrong with windows 8 it felt like it was harkening back to windows 7 uh the windows our windows 10 review is actually one of the first big ones i did here at engadget that's like 2015 so like even like it felt good from the beginning and i feel like microsoft has only made it stronger windows 11 does feel like the remnants of that windows 10 x plan they had for dual screen devices which kind of all fell apart it seems like um you know a a feature upgrade that was transformed into a whole new os in a way uh do you get that sense dan yeah, I do. I think mm -hmm. um, there's a, as I said, it, it's quality of life updates rather than yep. anything earth shattering. Although the new uh, kind of bundle the icons in the middle of the bottom <laughs> of the of the taskbar, I'm saying nothing, but it definitely feels like they've uh, they've definitely mm -hmm. uh, uh, tried to adopt another another company's UI. I, I can't think of the, the name of the company. They've but. macked it up, but you know what? Uh, <laughs> if you've been looking since Windows Seven, uh, the the icon only taskbar has existed since then. It just oh, wasn't yeah. centered. Um, but also like, hey, I, I talked about this in our previews. People trade, like these companies trade design ideas back and forth. Like Apple has yeah, taken yeah. a lot from Windows and yeah, Microsoft is taking a lot from Apple at this point. And uh, I do have to say just using Windows 11 um, on my test device, like it is, it's very elegant. It is very nice. Like I think there are more like visual design flourishes here than we typically expect from Microsoft. So. I'm interested to see how people respond to it. Um, it feels like a mature Windows in a way. Uh, so yeah, Windows 11 coming October 5th. Um, there's also some confusion with how Microsoft is doing the install, like allowing installs. They've gone back and forth on that with a lot of folks. Um, the Verge last week reported that Microsoft is also letting anyone install Windows 11 ISOs which is interesting because right now there are, there are all sorts of like upgrade requirements. If you're trying to bring a Windows 10 PC uh, into Windows 11, you need to have secure boot. You need to have like um, basically a lot of secure elements and a pretty modern processor. Basically, if you have a, ch a CPU that's older than four years and you don't have secure boot and everything, you can't upgrade into Windows 11, but you can download you know the ISO put it on a USB disc or burn it to a DVD. Oh my God. Um, but you can put it on a device and install it manually, which I guess is great for enthusiasts and like IT people, but maybe not regular users. Have you been following the the madness around Windows 10, like Windows 11 installation? I think, yeah, I think mm -hmm. fundamentally it's, it's a sort of sop to those customers who were using big, you know, they've got this big infrastructure and they just want to kind of grab... They want to grab an ISO and see whether they can get Windows right. 11 working to a level that they can still do their do their business on it. Mm -hmm. uh, but what's interesting is that 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 they've sort of very publicly discussed that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I think uh, most companies, I think, would sort of keep that information to their sort of pro channels, to their IT channels, rather than announcing it to everyone. It's true. Yeah, but yeah. it's. It's 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 nice. I mean, it. I'm sure there is older hardware that will probably be able to run it if you know it's fine you'll get yeah. you'll get a reduced experience but you will be able mm -hmm. to run it and i i applaud microsoft for saying well you know the iso is available 
take your chances. We, we yeah, take your chances. As a former yeah. IT guy, I always look for the ISO. Like I used to have a bag that was just like, okay, emergency Windows. It was Windows XP. It was Windows <laughs> ME Vista. Like back when I was doing IT stuff at school, um, I had to have all this stuff to be able to fix everyone's computers. Uh, having a separate Win 11 ISO is nice. There is an argument from a lot of people that it seems like Microsoft is pushing people to basically upgrade their computers, maybe unnecessarily. I'm not sure how you feel about that. Or like, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I don't get that sense. But is it like from your perspective, Dan, does it seem like they're kind of pushing people to upgrade too because of all these requirements? The thing, do you know what? It's more mm -hmm. that um, whilst Windows 11 is, is the newer thing, I don't really see why you can't linger on, right. the, you know, on the current system for a long while. I'm sure Microsoft will pull... Uh, pull support for it at some point in the they future. They said like twenty twenty five is yeah. when like you know, that's a ways away. Yeah. So even if you even if you buy a machine now and it can't well I guess you there's if no you buy a machine now. now it will it will definitely work. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you bought a machine maybe two years ago mm -hmm. and it and it can't run for whatever reason it can't run Windows eleven, you're still gonna get sort of six years of life out of or use out of it and probably a little mm -hmm. bit more because Microsoft is famous for always pushing back support absolutely so yeah, i I, yeah. I think given the the kind of the the massive blob that is all of those pcs that are running windows this mm -hmm. is the only way you can sort of stagger and manage that transition because mm -hmm. i think you know pr previous versions of windows have always struggled with this backwards compatibility uh issue where you know the 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 os gets so massive because you're trying to serve every single every single customer who has a, a even vaguely compatible machine this feels like a fair, annoying for those people who are kind of caught on on the cusp, but yeah, yeah. But it, it's a fair compromise. It also like um, not to defend Microsoft too much, but yeah. it is really hard <laughs> to make massive uh, system wide changes because Windows has to support like a lot of stuff, like yeah. way back to Windows XP. So they're kind of limited in what they could do. This feels like um, on the heels of the the various um, CPU vulnerabilities we saw uh, a couple of years ago on Intel and AMD chips, like they are trying to really lock down Windows into a more secure environment. So, hey guys, like if you if you want like less malware, if you want like uh, a potentially less vulnerable PC experience, um, a lot of these restrictions will be really useful. But like you're saying, Dan, I don't I don't think you're left out in the water. The one big thing is that. Uh, there is, what is it, DirectX 12 Advanced, like the highest level of gaming performance, uh, along with um, their new memory technology, the stuff that's in the Xbox Series X and S. Uh, that is only going to be on Windows 11. So gamers, I think, are going to feel that need to really get the you know upgrade if they can. If yeah. you built your own rig two or three years ago, you may be high and dry if you used an older CPU. So... You know, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be rocky. I'm sure a lot of people are going to complain, but I hope um, for the broader PC market that it's going to be, you know, worth worth the jump there. Let's move on to this other story and a pretty important one too. September 1st, which would be, um, yeah, yesterday as of this recording, um, major Twitch streamers have organized the hashtag day off Twitch to protest uh, hate raids and Twitch's inability to help to prevent those basically and i don't know if you guys have seen this in action but uh typically it's been like uh women and people of color who are streaming on twitch 
just like bots uh, spamming their chats with hateful messages and things that will flood their actual fans and also distract the streamers and basically make it a really toxic environment for them. I think this protest was totally necessary because Twitch has not done much to protect marginalized voices. So, you know, it's a thing I'm going to shout out and we will probably follow up on this like as we hear more about it, but it, it's a big deal. Like people are trying to broadcast and put themselves out there, but it's also just as easy for haters and, you know, people who are outright racist and bigots to kind of drown them out too. So this is the kind of war we're at. Do you know what? I, mm -hmm. there's a very, I'm going to go very broad about this because mm -hmm. one of the big curses of the, a lot of these platforms that are essentially asking for user generated content. I think um, what they have always been very lax about is moderation and being proactive about yeah. moderation. And for there's there's a conflicting incentive there because the more you moderate, the less content there is, the less content there is, the less material you can sell advertising against, and so it it harms the pro the the bottom line. Whereas really, um, the end result is which we've seen on Facebook, we've seen on Twitter, we've mm -hmm. seen on, on pretty much every major social platform, certainly over the last five or six years, is that the the lighter the touch you have, um, the more problematic things get. And then you yep. get, yep. you know, this sort of, uh, these sort of drive-by attacks, which are designed really to shut down streamers. Because obviously when you start having all this, you know, all this kind of language thrown into the chat, then you have to get moderators involved. Then the onus is on the streamer who's, you know, potentially not controlling their own guests or they're not mm -hmm. being proactive enough. And it's very much the devil's bargain. And I think a lot of these platforms are going to have to reckon with this sooner rather than later, because if they don't, they're going to find, mm -hmm. um, they're going to find people leaving purely because they, you know, they, they don't feel welcome and they will take those audiences away and they will lose money in the longer term as well and it's yep. it's it's a really big tough problem but it's also one that if if they don't get serious about soon it is going to hurt them and it's going to hurt them very badly mm -hmm. what i love about this especially online communities is that hey you know if if we're not being supported by the big corporation that's you know uh powering the service we're going to come up with our own tools so people have come up with like all these sorts of like hacks and third-party uh solutions uh there's like a panic button which I think is kind of interesting. It basically takes the chat immediately into limited mode and it limits like the ability of new users with abusive names to join. Um, you know, th that sort of thing is useful, but hey, Twitch um, owned by Amazon, like the, these things, it's a, it, these companies should be able to better support these services. Um, I do think a lot of them, especially when it comes to user generated content, uh, they assume they could just sit back and like let money you know, let money be printed and not do much to actually support it. And I think we're getting to the point where that's really not true. If you if you have a platform, you got to support it and you got to protect your people. And speaking of platforms, <laughs> I think we want to pour one out for Lowcast, the local um, local network streaming solution here in the U.S. I love Lowcast. Lowcast has been the way I. Um, if I'm watching the Oscars or if I need to watch something that's only broadcast on like network TV, uh, 
for the past couple of years, I've lived in places where my where like an HD TV antenna just doesn't pick anything up. Lowcast has been a big help, but it is it's dying. And you did a great write up, Dan, of uh, specifically what you know what is going on and what's bringing it apart. This morning, as as we're recording this, they just announced that Lowcast is officially dead. But Dan, how did we get here? So. If I if I'm allowed to go on a on a on a slight always, ramble, I guess always yes. Um, one of the problems is just the very the very complicated nature of of broadcasting, analog broadcasting, and the laws that govern it in the U.S. And to a certain extent, you know, there is television that you can pick up for free with an antenna, and but also there's television that you are legally entitled to receive for free, but mm-hmm. If for whatever reason you can't receive it, you're also pretty much prohibited from accessing it through the internet for various copyright-based reasons. And this is um, one of the things that that Locast was um, designed to tackle was the Aereo problem. If if you don't remember, or I should Mm -hmm. say if the listeners don't remember, Aereo was a New York-based a for-profit company that essentially tried to digitize you know they they had a building in new york with loads of of antenna on the roof and they were all it, it was amazing like specifically like area areas thing was like we have hdtv antennas we have one yeah. for every person streaming and that is how we're getting around every <laughs> yeah. every like restriction on this brilliant but it too it was it was too much for this world apparently yeah well the so one of the things that Lowcast was designed to um, was designed to test was the legal case mm-hmm. for uh, rebroadcasting under the Communications Act. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know what your kind of grounding in the law is, but there are certain not much. Times... I follow. I follow like media stuff as much as I can. But okay. you're you're the law guy, Dan. I know you. <laughs> you follow legal procedures quite a bit. Yeah. So um, you know there are times when people will will set something up as a test mm-hmm. case, and that can be you know for consumer rights it can be basically to say i have the i have set this up with the intention of being sued in order to provoke a legal argument and receive some kind of uh, settlement and david i want to say good friend uh the guy who founded locast is a lawyer and a former fcc lawyer Mm -hmm. and he basically said if you run it as a non-profit then you get around the area problem Yep. By basically yep. doing what Aereo did, but you can say, well, actually, we are a non-profit mm-hmm. rebroadcasting outfit. All we're doing is um, adhering to the the kind of the accessibility requirements of the Communications Act and the FCC right. guidelines. If, if I can't get the stream, which I should be getting uh, as somebody who yeah. lives in America, like surely using another service to help me get it should be legally fine, right? And it is. I mean... If you are, mm-hmm. um, and I did, I, I buried myself in the documents for this yesterday. If you're, <laughs> if you're like, I think it's one side of the Louisiana River. Uh, yep. Your station has a different name, but you know, whatever local station there is, uh, the someone else, a third party, is legally entitled to rebroadcast that signal within the sort of the edges of its footprint to right, make sure right. that everyone who that local station serves is able to access it. And so this was set up with that intention with the intention of testing whether this legal protection would work and the networks say actually this wasn't uh, a, a philanthropic uh, right. enterprise this you know um the dude who founded it is is very close friends with 
high ups at AT&T and Dish Network. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is, I, I better say, reportedly, um, <laughs> and there's a, there's a Wall Street Journal or a New York Times piece on this from, from 2019, where the idea is that uh, several prominent media executives in the in the kind of the pipeline business gave money or, or helped the the founding of this company mm. and the big network said well actually what you're doing is you're using a loophole to get around paying us carriage fees because um <laughs> you know you, this is essentially a a, a, a money dodge because you're paying this supposed non-profit and um locast i think locast was sort of doomed a by the fact that the mm-hmm. networks were never ever ever going to not bury this company <laughs> in litigation and mm-hmm. also because um the court found that locast was earning way more money when you're a non-profit you yeah know, obviously yeah. There, were, there were rules about how much money surplus money I, I won't call it profit but obviously you know there's surplus money after running costs revenues yeah I don't yeah, know. yeah 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 whatever you want to call it and locast was taking significantly more money in than it needed for running and also it was using some of that money to push into other territories, mm. other states mm-hmm. in the US. And the court said, well, you are, broadly speaking, you know, you are you are walking like a for-profit enterprise and quacking like a for-profit enterprise. And so therefore we are going to remove the, the sort of the legal shield that was keeping you running. The EFF said that this was, um, you know, a very flawed judgment. And I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that Locast has just shut down. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's a case that they just felt it isn't going to be worth pursuing it because the big networks have so much money and they have so much to yeah, gain yeah. or they have so much to protect from this that they're just going to, you know, mm-hmm. bury the company. But um, I would I would imagine that, and you know, give it two or three years and another company will try this or another, another project will try this very same thing until there is real sensible reform of the the media broadcasting landscape because it doesn't it's not going to work this this Mm -hmm. idea that you cannot you know that the the accessibility provisions for analog broadcasting cannot be imported to the internet because of reasons because we want people to buy a hulu subscription or anything else there is going to have to be a change here because otherwise Mm -hmm. um you know as as analog tv goes away it's gone. People are going to be. It's yeah. not here in the U.S. anymore. We we you know do what not I mean, though. Like, analog like, signals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so is this a, an argument, Dan? Like, I'm just thinking, like, if before, yeah, uh, analog signals were a thing that were legally required. Now, uh, broadcast networks, which take a lot of money from the government, um, yep. are required to you know spit out digital signals that anybody should have access to. Is is Locast just an argument for a nationalized form of like? Hey, there there should be an America streaming service, you know, that gives you all your broadcast networks that everybody should, can just access, depending on their location. Like to me, that's what the argument seems to be here, uh, but I don't know if we'll ever see that, you know. It would. It, I mean, it does sound very communist. Yeah. So, how, how how dare I? <laughs> but uh, yeah, these companies are taking government money, folks, like uh, because they're producing something that is should be legally accessible by people in America. So hey. Just a thought, just putting that out there. Uh, I know in uh, in the UK, Dan, you guys pay money towards the BBC, right? Like that is how you get yes. access to that. Mm-hmm. It's a it's it's a very it's a slightly complicated situation. So we have um, uh, two major channels. We have a a mm-hmm. the BBC, which is essentially paid for by an annual tax on the right to receive 
the BBC, more or less. There, it's complicated. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and then you have Channel Four, which is essentially PBS, but PBS with the idea of it runs commercials and it pays for itself. Yep. F- sort of through the running of commercials. I feel like most of my favorite shows over the last decade come from Channel Four, but yeah. Yeah, I mean Channel Four. Channel Four has always been a little bit off the wall. It's certainly mm-hmm. less so now. It. it kind of 10 years ago it trended very middle class it went yeah. from being very weird art shows and um shows really designed to sort of highlight communities sort of minority communities and everything else and now mm-hmm. it's very much kind of property shows and dating shows and reality <laughs> shows and could you know there's it's it's gone very it's trended very middle of the road but mm-hmm. essentially they you know there's always some really interesting stuff that um, that comes out of Channel Four. Channel Four was the first uh, channel to give um, it gave Charlie Brooker Black Mirror. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Phoebe Waller Bridge, who obviously everyone loves now, they um, commissioned her first sitcom, Crashing, which came out uh, slightly before Fleabag. Mm-hmm. That's uh, on Netflix now Fleabag. too. So yeah, yeah, that's a cute thing, but nowhere near as good as Fleabag. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, so you have that, and then you have ITV Channel Five. ITV is is for profit. Channel Five is is owned by uh, Viacom, I think now. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Sky, which is owned by Comcast. So you have a fair mix of sort of not for profit, or no, not not for profit, but sort of you know public service, public spirited broadcasting, and mm-hmm. then pay TV. Uh, behind the behind sort of sky's paywall and the cable paywall and it's a much i mean it's the fact that you get at least the first sort of five channels and then a lot more free as well and Mm -hmm. the service is pretty much universal if you want the premium stuff like movies or sports you have to pay and certainly if you want like the premium dramas you have to pay if you want like the hbo stuff you have to pay but by and large you get enough content universally that you know it's it's not a mishmash gotcha gotcha well you know what thank you thank you for all the updates i i have a full understanding of how broadcast works now in the uk you're gonna cut all of this out now aren't you no no well i I think it's really interesting and people should know like how things work in other countries too because i think that's really super informative so hey folks locast is dead r.i.p locast uh let us know what you think about it did you use locast was there a reason for it um do you hd do hd antennas not work for you where you live because that was a big thing uh my last apartment in new york just had thick concrete walls and just like no matter what i did i couldn't get anything so let us know about your experience and do you think there should be a nationalized broadcast network streaming service like 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 i'm pitching here let (laughs) us know podcast and gadget.com All right, let's move on to some audience Q&A from our folks here in the chat room. As always, we yeah, we record and broadcast around Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, join us. Join us on our YouTube channel, folks, and let us know. Um, we have Q&A seconds uh, most weeks, but this week I want to get some, like, actually into the show. S- someone, uh, someone asks, uh, ACBC asks, which is harder, to pick a lock or hack a digital lock? You need to watch the lock picking lawyer on YouTube, my friend. Mm. There is, you know, every lock is is, and every digital lock is pickable in about five seconds. It's terrifying. Really, really? even the even the keypad ones, or is it just smart locks? Because I do like a keypad lock, like the one where you get the numbers, and actually just we set those up in some doors of our home, just because 
you don't want to be stuck somewhere. You don't want to be locked out, right? If uh, yeah. if you don't have a key or something, and the keypads generally seem safe. What what is the keypad? What is the lock lawyer taught you, Dan? Oh my god! So um, mm -hmm. have you not? Have you not seen it? It's, I've not seen it. Oh, good grief! It's amazing. He's done a, a million videos at this point, and all he does it's it. He never shows his face. It's just him, like at a table. A lock comes in. He unpicks it. He's like, "Hey, mm -hmm. um, so this is a this is a lock. Uh, it's being sold by these manufacturers." And click. This is how you unlock it by hacking it. And then he'll get like a digital lock, and he'll say, "Okay, well, this lock. All you need to do is get a very strong magnet, and you just go mm. flick." And so huh. many of these small locks just get completely, uh, oh. completely rendered useless by a strong magnet and about three mm -hmm. seconds of effort. Um, mm -hmm. he's, he did a great video explaining how you can hack, uh, like an NFC, uh, type, uh, system so that you can clone a key card. And that did, I mean, I think you have to have some, I think you have to have physical access to the, the key card, like cover, mm, you know, the okay. actual, the, the scanner, but it is crazy how, <laughs> uh, like a gifted, a talented, well-motivated individual can basically crack any physical security in about a minute mm -hmm. and that's it's slightly terrifying that's that's tough i i, I feel like any lock just like any computer right everything is hackable oh, uh, yeah. if somebody has is persistent and they have enough tools for it but uh i did just so my front door has uh one of the yale keypad lock which i think is oh, really yeah. super useful because when we were on vacation i could just like give a code to our cat sitter and she punches it in and just comes in and it locks off at a certain time of the day um that was always super useful and funny thing is like when we were where we were staying like uh by the beach somewhere they had the same lock too and that's how <laughs> they get all the guests to get into and out of uh the houses to me that's a good thing especially if you don't like connected locks if you don't want something wi-fi connected a keypad as long as you can remember it and you don't mind like changing it or creating like guest codes for other people i think that's generally like that's a pretty nice thing. It is worth the extra cost because then uh, you'll never be locked out of your house, which to me is always a concern. That's happened to me before, and now that I have a baby, I don't ever want to you know, be locked out. Hamad S. Sumru is asking about features of, access of accessibility in Windows 11. Um, I do hear that uh, you know Microsoft is trying to do better around that. I believe... Um, voice transcription and voice commands uh i saw more support for that um in windows 10 they did uh create ways to basically uh start transcribing anywhere but i think that is more of a centralized feature in windows 11 and uh, assuming you have a good microphone you'll probably be able to type all over you know the place with your voice so i think that's a big uh that's a big push there we've also seen that microsoft has been they care more about accessibility than a lot of other companies. They they get a lot of um, they develop that accessibility controller for Xbox, which lets people with all sorts of disabilities um, be able to play games. So I do think as a company, Microsoft is doing better than other folks. But yeah, we'll be paying attention to this. Uh, that's definitely like a note in our reporting around Windows 11. Oh, someone called DCH mm -hmm. Pictures mentioned that we didn't mention Reddit. We didn't mention that Reddit was also yes. going through. Uh, a similar moderation problem with uh, with Steve Huffman. Uh, I don't know if you want me to talk about it now. Go for it. Go for it. So yeah. very briefly, um, Steve Huffman. Like there was there was a lot of concern about 
uh, COVID-19 misinformation and there was a whole a very popular subreddit of, of sort of promoting COVID denial and vaccine refusal and all of these other really mm-hmm. smashing things. And uh, CEO Steve Huffman uh, uh, released a post saying, well, you know what, this is marketplace of ideas, free exchange mm. of information. We can't just go around shutting down protests blah. left, right and center, blah, blah, blah. God. And then uh, very swiftly, a, a huge amount of, of subreddits went dark, which, you know, they don't, they don't sort of go off, but they sort of shut down so they can't be discovered by new users. And, you know, 24, 48 hours later, they take down this sort of big centralized vaccine denial group because mm-hmm. actually, yes, it's not the marketplace of ideas. It's just, it's just bad. And it's, it's just bad. Yeah. yeah. It is funny how we're like, uh, I think the libertarian ideal of the internet is like, yeah, free exchange of ideas. Anything is anything is fair game, right? And uh, we start to see the limits of that. And I think in a, when we're going through a major societal catastrophe, you know, an event that is affecting the health uh, of millions of people, like everybody on this planet, um, information and bad information can be dangerous in the internet as a lethal. mechanism yeah it can be lethal it, it is leading like in america i don't know how things are on your side of the pond dan but right now people are taking horseworm medication uh joe rogan the popular podcaster just announced he has COVID 19 and uh he, he is taking is it ivermectin he is taking taking that uh even though this is the same guy who said if you're healthy and a virile man don't have to worry about covid um <laughs> i hope somebody confronts joe rogan about these contradictions on his very popular show but yeah information can be dangerous and i do think like all these services so facebook is dealing with this now too um if your platform exists to you know let people be social and spread information around we kind of have to be careful especially when we're amidst this pandemic sure you could you could do whatever you want like once once we get out of covid but man this is this is not the time to be telling people to be going down conspiracy angles um, when their health is at risk and people around them are at risk. I think it's interesting what topics get initially, I mean, initially in this case, but sort of get covered by the marketplace of ideas defense. And you notice that it's always ones where uh, there is a certain group of people who are very willing to sort of, very deliberately defend something that's almost indefensible and if i if we and i don't want to i don't want to sound glib here but let's say as an as a for instance a couple of years ago instagram had a real problem with uh, eating disorder content and eating disorder content was fairly universal like i don't remember uh joe rogan or anyone else going to the battlement saying oh no no um or Steve Huffman saying, oh, no, 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 uh, marketplace of ideas. We have to encourage um, a community of, you know, kind of prominently teenagers into listening to people basically kind of putting out uh, eating to sort of propaganda. Right. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to not to sort of uh, sound glib when I say this, but, you know, everyone sort of generally agreed that was not the sort of thing that responsible platforms and responsible people would do. And yet with this, all of a sudden, oh, no, 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 this is a this is a reason debate. And I have I have no idea what the difference is between those two. 
but uh, and I, I have no idea why uh, one is treated uh, with uh, reverence and the other one is sort of generally accepted to not be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll leave that up for the for the listeners and viewers to decide. But I think it's really interesting that there seems to be a double standard here. And again, it goes back to this whole user generated content thing where if you don't in fact you know what's really interesting really what we're talking about is strikes you know the users and content generators who are who are making the profit both for reddit and twitch have gone Mm -hmm. on strike in order to protest the working conditions uh, therein and maybe maybe this is something that we will see more as we have these big global sort of connected networks you have the ability for these people who are sort of performing a lot of unpaid or underpaid labor to mm-hmm. now organize and decide collectively well actually this is an unacceptable situation absolutely and uh, even if you're being paid well by these platforms I, they still need to do right by you yeah is the thing like a, a lot of arguments i've seen too is like oh man these really popular streamers are making so much money they, don't, they shouldn't have to complain about anything it's it doesn't matter it doesn't like these platforms should do better about avoiding yeah, people should. Yep. Mark Dibley asks, does Windows 11 have any further improvements for running Linux? I didn't see anything specifically around Linux, but uh, the big surprise, I think, in Windows 10 is just how much uh, Microsoft leaned on Linux. You know, when I was traveling to Seattle to cover Build, um, Linux was a big topic. Like, the developers loved uh, loved having direct Linux support in uh, inside of Windows. I believe the, was it the Linux terminal? Um is in there and the stuff developers need that normally you'd have to boot into a Linux computer or a desktop, you know, Linux environment. Uh, you could just now do within windows. I'm, I can't imagine windows will, uh, Microsoft will stop supporting that or not double down on that because the big thing I got from developers, um, and from covering build is that Microsoft has, is desperate for the love of God developers, please, please, support us and uh i think that's what we're going to see with the revamp microsoft store and everything um you know the big problem with the microsoft store so far in windows 10 is that a lot of people just didn't want to build apps for it and there were a lot of restrictions for building those apps too they are loosening those up we are hearing about the windows the microsoft store redesign um that is going to be a big part of windows 11 as well and i i'm I'm sure a lot of that will come to windows 10 too but Microsoft opening up restrictions, uh, allowing more types of apps into the store. And also, I think they're taking less of a cut, far less than what Apple is taking from uh, from app developers. Those should all be things to entice them to get into the Microsoft store. So hopefully they can they can make that work better in Windows 11. And Hamad S. Sumeru also asks, will old processors work in Windows 11? That is something Microsoft is continually updating us on so if you look at the the latest story uh we've written about their restrictions it does seem like um basically if your processor is older than three years you're you may be out of luck it may just not be supported um properly uh that has to do with like the way secure boot is supported and other features you know that can make windows 11 a lot more secure as an os uh it, do, it does feel like Microsoft is just trying to draw a hard line here. If enough people complain, though, they'll probably open that up even more. And like we're saying, if um, if you built your own computer and you you know you can't get in with the you can't do the upgrade easily, you can always download an ISO, install Windows 11 manually. That should work just fine.
let's move on to what we've been working on. Uh, I just want to shout out a couple of things. I played 12 minutes. The the game from, uh, is it Annapurna Interactive? Uh, yeah, Annapurna Interactive's game that we've been covering for a while. This is one starring uh, James McAvoy, Willem Dafoe, and Daisy Ridley. It is a top-down perspective, time-loop game. You come home uh, to a lovely dinner with your wife. A cop comes in and things go crazy. Um, I have been waiting years for this game. I remember seeing the first demos for 12 minutes, uh, in like 2015. This game has been in development for a very, very long time. And I spent maybe six to eight hours with it and I started really digging it. I think, um, it's basically a point and click adventure game. You know, it is a game where you collect items, you drag items onto people or other items and things happen. Uh, the time loop, which lasts about 12 minutes, uh, lets you kind of keep going back and trying new things to uh, resolve a mystery. The idea is that this cop says your your wife has killed somebody and he's trying to bring her to jail or worse. Um, things get pretty brutal in it. And that that is the loop. That is the essential murder mystery you're trying to solve here. And... I think the first couple hours were really good. I was really into this game. There were some like um, puzzle pieces where I was like, I basically spent a night thinking about it or dreaming on it and like solutions for the game for other things I need to do kind of came to me in my subconscious, which I think is a guy, that's a sign of a good game and a good narrative. And then there's the second half of the game, which is one of the worst stories and certainly some of the worst twists I've ever seen in anything, not just any games, but in movies or books or anything. Uh, this, this game goes places. I'm not a big fan of where it goes. And uh, it, it is, I, I think that's especially infuriating, right? It's not like it just started out being a bad game, but it kind of, it kind of got me being like, Oh, I, I'm a new inventive type uh, type of spin on an adventure game. But it turns out uh, the story is actually trying to tell is very dumb and the twists are not great. And uh, man, you can watch YouTube. You could watch YouTube runs of this game. If you have Game Pass, uh, I'd say it's worth playing the first couple hours just to see like how how it works. But man, is it is it infuriating. Uh, Dan, was this a game you were you were going to try at some point? No, I haven't heard of 12 minutes. So could you <laughs> is it like is it like a groundhog day type yes yes and then and then how does it how does the how does the solving please explain more about the mechanics well it's like Groundhog. it is actually very exactly like groundhog day like as you go through this loop you get more information and you, like you find out some stuff about your wife's history and then you could be like you could start to give her information and prove like prove you're in a time loop which i think is kind of fun like tell her things that you absolutely wouldn't have known or things you she was going to tell you um and th those parts of it i think are really cool um but man this game just starts to fall apart when it gets to like the actual meat of the mystery and what is going on and there are some like i don't want to say Shyamalan twists here because i think the the <laughs> the cliche is that all Shyamalan movies are based around twists that's not true and that's a whole other two-hour podcast um but go check out my review of old at the film cast uh that yeah that that movie is all over the place too uh, i enjoyed old a lot more than this movie is the thing or this game um, wow yeah that is that is like that is the harshest given the reviews for old that is dude, the harshest dude, thing dude you could is have talented. said about this thing dude is like <laughs> 
I think as a visual, and I think people don't know how to how to really judge this sometimes, but like his visual narrative capabilities, his ability to like tell you a story within the camera and how he moves the camera and whatnot, like visually he's great. As a writer, he's not. Um, hey, turns out this game, in that respect, this game is similar. I think visually it is really interesting. It's doing some really cool things. Um, but when it comes to like the writing, the dialogue people are saying, and the ultimate like where the story goes, I think it's a huge mess. So anyway, check out my review of 12 minutes it's called 12 minutes ruins a compelling game concept with awful twists um and you know let me know what you think about if you play a couple hours or if you finished it i know a lot of people who just hate played this game because it got so ridiculous they're like i gotta see where this goes and i'll be honest like by hour six or seven i was like yeah i i really want to see like how this train wreck kind of uh concludes so yeah that that was my impetus to keep going with the game other things I'm working on, uh, I mentioned the Razor Blade 14 last time. That review should be going up today or tomorrow. Uh, it's going up this week. This is Razor's 14-inch gaming notebook. I I really like it. It's really fast, but man, you also really start to feel the, uh, the compromises in a 14-inch machine. It runs really hot. Um, the keyboard is more cramped than I would like, and I feel like in a shooter where you're really hitting uh, those WASD keys, you don't want your fingers to feel cramped there because that that ruins the entire point of having a gaming laptop. So it's it's good. It's powerful. Uh, I like it a lot more than the Razer Blade Stealth 13, which is their 13-inch machine, which is really underpowered and incredibly overpriced. Uh, I don't think anybody should buy that computer. Uh, the Blade 14 at least like has has a fit for it. Uh, I just wish maybe it was a little lighter or it was more differentiated from the Blade 15, which is, hey, Razor, Razor's premium notebooks are good. And the Blade 15 now weighs around 4.4 pounds. The Blade 14 weighs like 3.9. So it's like a half pound difference. It's not that much. And I do think like for a lot of people, the Blade 15 will just serve you better. Uh, but keep an eye out for my review. Um, we've got a video of that going up too. Dan, what have you been working on? So I've been, uh, I've got a few things that I can't talk about yet that are going up in the near future, but um, I, w I wanted, wanted to talk about the, the Pavilion Aero 13, which <laughs> okay. I reviewed last week, mm -hmm. which I was genuinely surprised by. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's one of HP's sort of fairly low-end machines. It's a pavilion, and, so that that's how you tell with yeah. HP, by the way. Pavilions usually their lowest, and there's Spectre, and then there's the or Scepter, right? Uh, the the one above that, yeah. Yeah, uh, but the idea behind this, because it's it's Aero branded, and so the Aero is like the the thin and light sort of really crazy light, yeah. Uh, sub brand there, and what they've what they've done is they've made a genuinely surprising thin and light i think it weighs I, I i can't remember if it weighs the same or it's like half a uh half you say 2.2 pounds yeah 2.2 pounds i think it's the same as uh the lg gram uh-huh which is yeah but, that's pretty light yeah which is super light but whereas mm -hmm. with the lg gram you've got really hobbled performance yeah this is running a i want to say off the top of my head a 5800u mm -hmm. which is a ryzen uh 7 5800 sure. So that means and it has a bit of Radeon graphics too. That's it's it, got nice. Radeon graphics. Yeah. It's surprisingly thin and light. The compromises are really obvious all over the thing. The display is it's just an HD. Yeah, it's not HD because it's it's uh, sixteen by ten, but it it's HD. Mm -hmm. Like don't don't write in. It's HD. <laughs> um, the keyboard is fine, but I it's too crowded. There's an extra function row which annoys me. It's got half height um, arrow keys. It annoys me. The trackpad is very serviceable. 
but it's under a thousand dollars and it's got radeon graphics it's actually quite powerful like it doesn't do well in benchmarks fair enough but in day-to-day stuff i can play i can play games on this thing perfectly well Mm -hmm. i can work from this thing perfectly well and it's in a body the same size and weight as an lg gram where you would normally get sort of super weak core i3 performance in terms of the entry level model uh and even um i compared this to the xps 13 and how dare you i know right i know very (laughs) controversially but when you look at it from like a spec by spec basis the xps 13 is obviously a way more expensive way nicer machine Mm -hmm. but in terms of the performance and the weight the pavilion actually kind of edges out because mm-hmm. certainly for the base model i think the base model is what one thousand one hundred dollars and you're getting a core i3 with eight gig of ram whereas yep. this is i, I want to say 949 or 999 and you're getting 16 gigs of ram with this um ryzen 7 5800u and it just wipes the floor like Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is it is a perfectly good machine for this target market, and I'm. This is I'm the just... the benefit of Ryzen, by the way. Like these yeah, new yeah. Ryzen chips, super fast and generally cheaper than Intel stuff. And I think at the low end, yeah, like here, like you're talking about, like yeah, mm-hmm. you get a lot of performance and you get a little bit of graphics. And Intel has been working really hard with integrated graphics, and it's fine, but it's n- nowhere near as good as like what even a tiny bit of Radeon performance gets you here. Yeah, so you like this overall, Dan? Yeah, I did. I mean, with the graphics, it's. Uh, I think what caps it and what holds it back with the benchmarks is that there's only 512 megabytes of of, of RAM attached to the to the mm-hmm. Radeon itself. So I think a lot of the the benchmarks just just almost refuse to run on that little RAM. But that's it's, crazy. I'm yeah. I'm looking at your stuff, by the way, Dan. I'm looking at your benchmark table and compared to the Surface Laptop 4 15-inch, which is my, that is my Windows 11 test machine sitting right yeah. here next to me, that thing has a Ryzen 7, the custom MS uh, Microsoft chip. That maybe, maybe it's because you're looking at newer drivers and stuff too, but you've got like over a thousand points more yeah. in PC Mark 10. Uh, yeah. Not as much in 3D Mark, uh, but your Geekbench 5 and PC Mark performance is better. I think that also has to do with this being a uh, Ryzen 5000 serious yep. chip, whereas the Surface Laptop 4 is, I believe, Ryzen 4000, so like slightly last gen. But that is pretty good performance, like you're saying. It is It is surprising. And again, mm-hmm. at this sort of price and in this sort of body shape, it is tremendously surprising. And I, th- I think unrelated to this device, I feel mm-hmm. like as more of these kind of thin and light Ryzen machines sort of filter through, Intel is going to have a real problem on its hands mm-hmm. unless... Unless Pat Gelsinger can really kind of put a fire under Intel, I Which think it, it AMD seems is like good. he's trying to do. But oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean he's I mean he's he's done the thing of announcing a lot of very hard deadlines. Yep. But it's very easy to announce a hard deadline. It's and and you know no shade on Intel who is you know as a company is full of very smart people. Lots of I shade guess. on Intel, I'd say. Like <laughs> they, they deserve some shade. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they've mm-hmm. got to they've got to kind of hit this now, and I don't know whether one whether mm-hmm. one change at the top is is necessarily going to kind of right. change right. all of the the engineering cul de sacs that they've been down. But mm-hmm. I, I mean, hopefully Intel kind of pulls themselves out of this out of this spin. AMD continue to grow, and we get the benefit of just amazing thin yeah. and light chips that that don't suck. 
competition like, is great, like folks. This yeah. is why competition is good. Like AMD is pushing Intel to be better. To be honest, like Intel being dominant was the thing that pushed AMD to really like whip up its designs too. So I'm running an AMD powered desktop now. For years, I was I was just an Intel guy. Uh, so you know you can go back and forth. Um, buy the chip that works best for your you know the things you actually need. Uh, but yeah, Dan, I'm glad you got to check out this laptop. I do like thin and lights. I want like, yeah. I think the perfect laptop is around two pounds. That gives me all the performance I need. Um, that's where ultra portables should be going. What else? What else are you working on, Dan? So the other thing, uh, Saints Row is as part of the Gamescom. Uh, mm-hmm. Saints Row Not Five was right. announced. Uh, I am. I have a little bit of a soft spot for Saints Row. Love Saints Row. Uh, yeah. I bailed out. Well, it, kind of everyone mocks my gaming taste because I like terrible <laughs> games. So I have to kind of preface oh, it man. by saying... You and Charlene am... need to have like a show together <laughs> of just bad game <laughs> times. Yeah. But yeah, what's up? Um, so I I bailed out of GTA 4 and mm-hmm. 5. I, both of them just, I think, lost me because the narratives just sprawled so much. And there were mm-hmm. so many... There were so many side missions. Like in terms of the content that both of those games have, you it's cannot do. Yeah. you cannot fault them for like just the sheer amount of stuff. You get your money's yep. worth out of that game. But I just found them getting very boring. And then you play a game like Saints Row the Third. And it is it it's like being handed um blue Skittles or blue <laughs> MMs. Um the old fashioned ones with the food coloring <laughs> that sent you loopy, you know? And You're like, Whoa. um uh maybe it's like you know getting a a mountain dew like a giant gallon of mountain Uh Dew, uh and then just throwing you into a playroom and letting you just go absolutely uh crazy and so i always had a soft spot for the saints row series because i mean saints row the third is when they went crazy basically they're like okay we're we're just gonna go loco you know uh grand theft auto tries to be grounded in reality saints row is like you you get superpowers uh keith david's here you know like (laughs) just like yeah it's crazy and and yeah and those games are fun they're not in they're not particularly replayable mm-hmm. i think they wear out their welcome fairly quickly but then it's it's fun it is that sort of fun hit mm-hmm. of just gonzo fun that yeah. carried it through four and then and then the dlc and four and goes to the place where it's like i i don't know if you can actually continue this game anymore because you've gone so no. crazy where it's like uh you've broken the narrative congratulations they did break the narrative <laughs> yeah yeah but then um but they, ba- I mean, this is what Volition basically said was mm-hmm. there was nowhere else for us to go with this story. We this is their second reset, really, after after Agents of Mayhem, which which wasn't particularly well. We'll never received. talk about again. Yeah. Yep. And so now they're coming back with this sort of clean sheet reboot, and it is definitely the. It seems a lot less Gonzo, mm-hmm. and certainly in the trailers so far, and and the the developer interviews and everything else. They do seem to be aiming for a lot more serious. Mm-hmm. And it's they, like Saints Row 2 almost yeah, all over this again. This is it. Yeah. It's it's very much we're not going completely Grand Theft Auto, but we're sort of stepping away from Saints Row 3 and 4 levels of fun. I don't know whether I I'm a little bit apprehensive. I'm nervous because I hope that it's not po-faced and tedious and I hope that they've still got that fun but they're holding that back purely as a sort of marketing tactic but i'm i will be i will be buying it day one because i just i'm hoping it's going to be fun and i'm i'm hyping myself up for this (laughs) but yeah it's uh, i'm nervous about it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's uh 
hey, it it's it looks fun. I think that trailer is a lot of fun. I think the next game I'm really hyped up for is Deathloop, which we'll talk about quite a bit too. Um, I think Dan, have you played the Dishonored games? No. I think I, I think you will love the Dishonored really? games. I'm trying to like okay. that. That is my mission is to try to get everybody onto it because it's like. <laughs> It is like French fantasy. It is first person, but it's like French fantasy meets sci-fi. Uh, great, like great narrative and whatnot. It's first person, and I think it's the only game to get like first person sword fighting down well, even though you get projectiles and stuff. Anyway, everybody played okay. Dishonored. It's on Game Pass, <laughs> um, and Deathloop looks really cool too. Thank you for the update on Saints Row, Dan. You are welcome. Let's move on quickly to our pop culture picks. Uh, I've been watching Ted Lasso. I've been watching a lot of Ted Lasso. And uh, I, I think something happened on the internet where it's like, was it? I, I wasn't completely following what's happening because I think once this discourse started happening around Ted Lasso, basically there has been a backlash against Ted Lasso season two. And I basically did the the Grandpa Simpson uh, walking into the bordello thing where it's like, I walk in, I take a look, I just twist right around like whoop right no i'm i'm leaving the internet today um i think it's because of the christmas episode which uh for full disclosure both dan and i have access to ted lasso screeners because we cover stuff from apple tv plus also we're a huge ted lasso fans so like you know it's a thing we want to be able to like you know cover if we needed to uh we have been gushing over the christmas episode for a couple weeks now the broader world a lot of other people saw the christmas episode and they were like this show was bad after all it turns out <laughs> it turns out everything that's bad about ted lasso was in this christmas episode and i just think that's absolutely insane but what are, what are your thoughts on this dan because i'm trying to like talk about this without like seething in rage it's like we have one good thing in the world now <laughs> it's called ted lasso don't don't like ruin it with your bad discourse but what what's your thoughts it is <clears throat> pardon me it's very infuriating because it seems like the discourse machine had to at some point turn and now that ted lasso is very popular and you know i think the first season <clears throat> there, had, there was an arc there was an arc was, of popularity yeah like towards the yeah, end it people was got a it. slow yeah. burn yeah. and i think a lot of people were turned off with the idea it, you know it's a commercial they've made into a sitcom well I, w- I was turned off like i will be upfront and i talked about this on the show I never liked Jason Sudeikis. Like I think he has, <gasps> what? he has what you would call a punchable face. I no. think the movie, the movie uh, Colossal, which I'm not sure if you've seen, uh, I it's have a Nacho Vagalondo film. film. I think yeah. Colossal is the thing that has made the best use of Jason Sudeikis because I it think has. the smarminess yep. that is like underneath his nice guy exterior. That movie does a great job of like showing that. Whereas Ted Lasso is just all about he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. And, but we start to learn that there, you know, he has trouble. Like there, there are things going on underneath the surface. But yeah, go on, Dan. Okay, so what? Uh, I tell you what. One of the things about the Christmas episode, which I guess, um, I guess people people are waiting for the sort of the narrative other shoe to drop. Right. Right. And what I find maddening is that this is a half hour sitcom. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is this is not Succession series three. Okay. <laughs> People are treating Ted Lasso as if it is the Sopranos and Succession and The Wire all rolled into one. And I will admit, as much as I have enjoyed the series, I do get that there is a certain degree of discomfort because several of the episodes that have already aired, I'm going to be mm-hmm. fairly vague here, just 
to avoid spoiling several of the episodes that have already aired end on what could conceivably be described as a cliffhanger and yep. then it is ignored yep. afterwards mm. but it mm-hmm. is a sitcom first and foremost and so it's it, it is existing in a world that is slightly not completely but it is slightly heightened so stop stop expecting gravity to behave in the same way it is a mm. sitcom secondly um one of the things that you you put it this way one of the things that me and dev know but we can't talk to you about is that um some of the the plot lines are going to take a little bit of a left turn and certainly the episode that airs not this week but next week Mm. is it very much kind of drops it sort of drops an emotional uh, grenade in, in your lap and it's not necessarily that all of the plot lines converge but as a standalone episode it just feels as if a tipping point is reached and i think that's why apple haven't sent out screeners beyond that point because <laughs> yeah. i think they they know full well um that this is this is why the discourse so far is wrong and the mm-hmm. the other thing i will say is and i said this the last time we were discussing ted lasso on this very podcast <laughs> is that i didn't trust bill lawrence and, yes. and jason sudeikis because it did seem like they were just ripping off Major League and it was very two-dimensional. And then <laughs> hey. at South By... Well, yep. here's the thing. At South By, this year, Bill Lawrence said, yeah, we fooled you because we the first couple of episodes are essentially just a rip-off of Major League in sure, terms of sure. the narrative. And then there's this sharp left turn and all of a sudden it changes. And mm-hmm. you have to understand the discourses people right now mm-hmm. is that... These are talented, really clever people who understand the environment in which the sitcom is being watched and received, and they are playing a. I think they. I think it's fair to say. Agree with me or not? I sure. think they're playing a different game to the one that everyone is expecting them to play. Mm. I mean that that is the entire season too. Like this season, minor spoiler, but this season begins with a beloved character killing a dog. You know, that is the beginning of Ted Lasso season two, a show that has been, you know, heralded for for just being about uh, positivity and feel good and niceness. So I I think they're always trying to swerve and go go here. Uh, I'll say like, yeah, both of us have had screeners. A lot of folks are watching uh, Ted Lasso week to week. Like that is how it's being released. I do wonder if it was just like dumped as like a bingeable thing. If... uh, if this is like, if people wouldn't be talking about it this way, but also I'm seeing this response from a lot of critics too, who I know also have the, the later episode. So it's like, it is, I, I think there's a lot of stuff going on here. I'll just say up front. I like, I love the Christmas episode. It definitely feels like a thing that has been added to a larger season because it literally was, it was an extra episode. And I believe there's like another episode that's going to be that way too. Uh, Apple basically extended the season order. Um, but watching that episode i also felt like man this is just a this is a classic episode of tv like i am going to revisit this every christmas and to see people just immediately reject it it was just kind of surprising to me but anyway i think we're going deep on this i i I think the the main thing here is ted lasso season two um it is fascinating to see how the internet is taking it so yeah we we will talk more about this let's you know let us know what you're thinking about ted lasso season two folks 
but we will probably do a wrap-up chat uh, once the season is over. I briefly oh, can just I want come to... on that one? Yeah, can go I ahead. come on that one, please? I will. Let's try to uh, yeah, let's try to coordinate those times. But uh, yeah. I also want to shout out uh, Nia DaCosta's Candyman, which I saw in theaters. Yeah. Um, I'm. It sucks that things are once again getting bad in America, and I live in Georgia, which is a state that is very very dangerous because people are being very dumb uh but the the one benefit of what is of how theaters are handling the pandemic now is that they're just desperate so they're like open they're open a little earlier they're open at times where i can sneak in and there's like nobody there um so that is how i plan to do some of my stuff especially for film reviews um yeah i saw Candyman in an empty theater and it is it's tough. Like, I don't know how you feel about the original film, Dan. Uh, I love the original Candyman based on Clive Barker's story. He, uh, was it based in London or the UK? Like it was based in the UK and then he transplanted it to Chicago. Um, the director of the original film transplanted to Chicago. And just in terms of it being a movie that was, uh, deeply about race and the state of America and also just complete dread. Like I love the original Candyman so much. This movie is a direct follow-up in many ways. Um, but it doesn't have that same sense of dread. I, I think like it is almost like a cookie cutter redo of Candyman. There is some like great, there are some great like horror elements in here, like in terms of the kills and some of the set pieces, but it never felt scary. It never felt like I never got that like skin tingling sense of dread that the original Candyman got me, um, which is kind of a shame. Uh, I'm just going to put that out there. So let me know if you guys like that. Uh, just hit me up on Twitter about this one, probably. Um, Can I, I want to yeah. ask about this because um, I haven't read very much about this because I don't mm -hmm. know how I feel about because, again, the original is the original is a mood. It's a, it it's, is like that's it. The, the, the original is like. It is all about like that that the the feeling it evokes in you. It has a Philip Glass score, you know. It has tremendous <laughs> yeah. actors like Tony Todd is incredible in that movie. Um, it is yeah, it, it is a mood. It has texture, which is a thing I like to talk about in films. To me, this film does not have texture. Like there there is nothing to it in many ways. But go on, Dan. Well, I was going to ask you what's the mm -hmm. what is the the sort of if you can without spoiling it. What is the modern day update? Because I understand that it's mm -hmm. it's they've tried to kind of give it a tech angle or whatever mm -hmm. uh, these days. So so how have they how have they tried to take something that's quite primal, quite sort of lizard brain in terms of the fear of, of having this person sort of mm -hmm. pop up behind you when you're staring in a mirror? Uh, how have they how have they changed that? I mean the the basics are there, and what I love about the original film too is like. I think we all have these like folklore stories of like, you know, a thing, Bloody Mary or whatever, a thing you you conjure in the mirror. But that original film also like it, it evoked like the the horrors of racism uh, in the U.S. and kind of how that the stain on this country could kind of linger for decades or a century and become its own horror in a way. Uh, I think this movie kind of does that, too. Uh, it also like it modernizes it too because like uh, hey the Cabrini Green projects where the original was filmed have been knocked down in real life and uh, they've been replaced by condos and this movie is talking about like yeah the condos that have been built upon that legacy the people moving in and gentrifying the area it is about a lot of things very obviously but there is very little subtext to it. Like it, it is so blunt in a way. Um, so anyway, I'm going to be talking about more about this on the film cast, my movie podcast, but I just wanted to shout it out. Cause I know a lot of people were excited to see Candyman. 
any shows you wanna you wanna shout out Dan or movies? Uh, do you know what the only thing I've been watching uh, apart from Ted Lasso is Lower Decks, which great, I have to say great. I've been Star enjoying. Trek Lower Decks. Yeah, yeah, Star Trek. Well, I like I don't think anyone's calling it Star Trek Lower Decks. Mm-hmm. I think we're just calling it Lower Decks. Mm-hmm. Uh, those of us in the community. The, the Trekkie hive, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, we're just calling it Lower Decks. There's no need to, to preface everything. I don't, like, I hated when they rebranded Enterprise in the third season uh, to Star mm-hmm. Trek Enterprise because Paramount were worried that people couldn't grasp that the space show on a spaceship called Enterprise <laughs> m- might not have been about, like, a, a sure. Star Trek-related series. But, um yeah, it's fun. I'm really in, it's it's the most fun out of all of the mm-hmm. the kind of the the Paramount Plus now reboot era Star Trek shows. Um, I think Lower Decks is head and shoulders above everything else. I'm enjoying it so yeah. much, and I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying. Have you, you how... watched the first season when it came out? Right? Or are you just watching yeah, yeah, the yeah. second season now? Okay. No, yeah, I'm I'm following on with the second season with with the releases. Whereas I think. Mm-hmm. I think we got a, a weird schedule in the UK because I think mm-hmm. it, it sort of hit prime a couple of weeks afterwards, whereas now we're getting it like the day after or a week after. I Interesting. Remember. But either way, okay. It's, okay. It's, um, yeah, and I'm I'm loving every minute. I'm loving I'm loving spending time with these characters. And again, it's one of those shows whereby um, it's just nice to hang out. It's it's yep. it's lovely to to follow along, and it you know it's never. It's never one of those shows that really demands you get like a big belly laugh, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's a really fun way of spending. Half it's an hour. consistently like it's funny in the way that Rick and Morty is funny too, because it's by one of the former Rick and Morty writers, so it has that like vibe of like quick hit jokes and like great characters and great context. But yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying it, Dan. Anything else Thank you want to add about that? Or uh, we have never talked about Picard, but maybe that is a uh, another discussion. Because oh boy, <laughs> what a mess! Do you know what? I really, yeah. if I had the time, I would be one of those guys who shoots like an hour long video about <laughs> all of the things. But I don't, I, I don't care about like the canon and the context. Mm-hmm. But I think Picard had so many great ideas that were just so badly organized and so badly oh, developed. Oh, man. And, yeah. And so much of it felt like all of the characters felt like they were pretending to do the things that they were doing and Mm -hmm. the motivations weren't clear. And I think, yeah, I was, I was, I'm a big, um, Michael Chabon. I've always said Chabon, but it's Chabon. It's Chabon. Yeah. But I love his books. Yeah. Yeah. His books are great. And, but (laughs) all of the kind of the novelistic depth seemed to go. And I don't know whether Mm -hmm. it was him because this is his first sort of major show running project or whether it Mm -hmm. was Kurtzman, doing his Kurtzman thing of just dumb mm-hmm. it down, make it louder, make it dumber. Uh, but there were, there were just so many moments where I felt this is a wasted opportunity. This is a wasted opportunity. Um, and it just, it made me feel very sad. I will hate watch the second, the second series. And if I get the time, I will make a, a the hour long YouTube video. But I, I feel like if I do, I'm going to be, I'm going to be marked off as one of those angry nerds. Who's just mad about things. Whereas, <laughs> i'm not a genuine i'm not i'm genuinely uh, not. <laughs> i don't know as we see from this podcast uh, i think that is gonna be your new title uh your new work title great thank you dan yeah. I, I think we'll let's wrap it up here and don't forget to stay tuned to the end of this episode for our interview with neil blomkamp the director of demonic thanks for joining us folks our theme music 
is by Game Composer, Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own managing editor, Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is usually produced by Ben Elman. Uh, I'll be editing this one, so send, send all the complaints to me. You can find me online at, at Devendra on Twitter. I also, could, I also do the Filmcast podcast at the Filmcast dot com um if you want to hit up sherlyn and see how she's doing on her vacation she's at at sherlyn low like dan where can we find you uh you can find me on twitter at, at daniel w cooper but i check it once a month so uh <laughs> okay any knee hate can uh, can can wait send dan all your <laughs> star trek opinions you can email us at podcast and gadget.com leave us a review on itunes and subscribe on anything that gets podcasts including spotify now let's move on to our interview with Neil Blomkamp. Uh, you may know his name. He's the director of District 9, Elysium, Chappie. He's a guy who kind of burst onto the movie world uh, by creating these really special effects heavy films on really low budgets. And uh, District 9 certainly made a splash. And with Demonic, he is trying to get back to the sort of like low budget digital filmmaking thing. Um, his big draw with this movie is volumetric capture he basically created these arrays to uh, capture uh, actors performances from multiple angles and that's something they could use to put them into 3d environments it's kind of wild uh, but i'll let him explain it listen to our chat okay thank you so much for talking with us in the engadget podcast neil can you give us an overview of demonic and you know what new technology you're bringing to it i know you've talked a lot about volumetric capture here so the, the overview of Demonic would be that for many years, uh, I have been, I've been very interested in films like Paranormal Activity and The Blair Witch Project, where filmmakers just went out and shot something themselves um, in the horror genre. And I always just found that really, really interesting. And I, I always wanted to do that at some point. Um, so I, I had that idea in the back of my head and actually Oates Studios and all of the stuff that we were doing and putting out on YouTube was very much cut from that same kind of cloth where you know, it was, mm -hmm. it was very much outside of Hollywood and we were just doing what we wanted to do. So there was a, there was a point when the pandemic began where because everything had, had been shut down and it was, it was not clear exactly what was happening with the film industry until, until, you know, things became more clear. It was a perfect time to dig up this idea of, of a self-financed horror film and then just kind of work on it. And I'd also moved to a new area at the beginning of the pandemic, which is more, it's a bit more rural. It's where the film is actually shot. And there were a bunch of locations that I thought would be interesting. So, um, so the, the, the movie is very unusual to the normal process because the normal process is you just write the script and then you work backwards to make that happen where this process was, okay, we can self-finance a movie and it's tiny. So mm -hmm. what do we want to do? And what do we have access to with our limited resources? So I, I kind of think of it like we built it out of a bunch of different puzzle pieces. So, you know, before the story and the script existed, I knew that I wanted to use Carly in the lead because I went through the, the war zone in, um, in Oates production with her. And I knew that she'd be really good with low budget production. Um, and I knew other Oates actors I wanted to use, like Michael Rogers and, uh, and Chris Williams Martin. So then it was like, okay, what locations are we using? And so all of those things happened. But there was a moment where I realized that this obsession that I have with volumetric capture could be, because it, it was always sort of sitting on a mental shelf somewhere where it was like, 
I'd love to use this, but I don't really know how because it's early and it's glitchy and I, I'm not sure how to put this into a movie. So that was, that was the, the sort of, um, you know, the, the gelling component that sort of brought the film together where because I knew there was something to do with demonic possession, it was small and self-financed, mm -hmm. it was in the horror genre. Um, once I brought this kind of more science fiction, sci-tech element into it, uh, that's what led to the idea of demonic possession being explored through virtual reality. And that's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 It, it seems like a combination of both low tech, you're self-financing. It seems like you're doing it like on location in many cases, but also high tech with the volumetric capture. That's yeah. a cool balance. Can you give us a sense of like, what do you mean by volumetric capture and how, how does that process work for you as you're shooting it? Well, I mean, it's, you know, volumetric capture is, is like motion capture in the sense that it's extremely separate from main photography, from, from film, mm -hmm. film on set photography. So we shot the whole movie and then we, bro we broke for at least two weeks, if not a month. And then we shot the Volcap stuff in, in a warehouse. And volume capture, I, I mean, I, your audience is probably pretty, pretty tech savvy, but, you know, motion capture is obviously the extraction of of uh, facial and body motion that is then applied to a rig that, it, that drives a three-dimensional character that artists have either created or sculpted or done, they've brought it to life somehow in a way that usually is not a human. It's something else. Um, so all that motion capture cameras are doing is they're gathering three-dimensional data points for each of the limbs and the face in a way that will drive that character. Volumetric capture, on the other hand, is um, 200, in this case, 260 4K cameras that, oh, yeah, wow. that are basically, um, there's, there, you know, again, your, your audience probably knows this, but there's a thing called photogrammetry in computer graphics mm -hmm. where you, you bombard an object with hundreds of photos and then you use computer programs to extract three-dimensional objects out of those photos. But one of the things you get with photogrammetry that's really cool is you get all of the surface texture data, not just a 3D object. So, you know, because a 3D object could look like a gray um, CAD model, but, right. but um, photogrammetry comes in with all of the reality of, of what the human eye sees with all of the, the imperfections and the paint color and the shadows and everything. So volumetric capture is photogrammetry happening at at least 24 frames per second. So you're you're getting your actor in hair and makeup and wardrobe mm -hmm. as, as they would appear in the movie, but you're getting them three-dimensionally uh, as, a, as, a as a chunk of geometry. And each frame is a, different, is a different piece of geometry. So radically different than motion capture, there are no bones or rigging system running through that character. There is nothing you can adjust. They, they are mm -hmm. locked into what they are, which is a piece of 3D video. It's moving moving geometry that's cool because so conceptually it seems like the evolution of maybe what we saw from bullet time on the matrix which i know a lot of people like that's that's a sense of like a camera moving around a space with a frozen image but also like i've read a lot about what james cameron did with avatar and his like you know almost like 3d shooting and using a virtual camera except now you have this sort of virtual capture of a physical you know an actual actor in a physical set that seems really cool yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, you're, you're, you know, you end up with, in a in a, in a world where the resolution wasn't an issue, you, you would end mm -hmm. up with a photo reel 
three-dimensional capture of that performance, which is a really weird mm -hmm. thing to wrap your head around. So um, as an example, uh, these, these scenes can be viewed in virtual reality, in true virtual reality, like for real, with mm -hmm. no gimmick, like just for real. So you can... And it wouldn't it wouldn't look like a three sixty no, degree it, video, right? Like it'll look like proportions are all right. Exactly. And and if you if your if your um, volume that your VR setup was big enough, you could walk around Carly and her childhood home and the sanitarium. You could walk everywhere. That's are you guys gonna release yeah. that like as an experience? Yeah, yeah. I wanna I okay. wanna uh, I wanna upload the the um, the simulation scenes in VR. Um, yeah, that's cool. There, there's a company mm -hmm. in the Czech Republic who did all of the CG, who I absolutely love, called uh, UPP. And UPP is now that the movie's done. They're um, they're creating these scene files that are the, each of the simulations. So you can, if you have an, if you have a like a nice headset, like something with you know something like an HTC Vive Pro. Um, right, you, you right. could you could watch the the scenes and and hear them acoustically correctly and stuff. That's really intriguing. So I, I saw the trailer for this film and I still haven't seen the film yet, but I'm looking forward to it. From the bits I've seen, it does look like you know you're using volumetric to create this like really almost ethereal capture of certain scenes. And I assume you have a virtual camera there. Does that give you the freedom to basically shoot it however you want once you have the whole scene? Yeah, captured? exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like. I mean, the, the thing, again, this is another way to differentiate it from motion capture. In, in a motion capture mm -hmm. um, virtual camera setup, you're filming a proxy of what, you know, you're getting a camera motion, which is cool, but it's still, it's still, you're still witnessing a proxy of what the movie will become because that's gonna be handed off to a VFX department to bring to life. Um, in, this, in this scenario, what you see in the camera when you're shooting it is, is literally what the movie is because it's in real time. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, that's a, it's a really strange concept and that's why it's applicable to VR because it, it's being calculated in front of your eyes. That's, re that's really, that's interesting. Did you find this to be a useful tool during the pandemic when, you know, right now you're capturing this physical set, but it almost seems like you could use this in many different ways or capture this stuff remotely and if you're on the other side of the planet you can actually frame it and shoot it the way you exactly want it even if you're not yeah. there right it seems like it's pretty flexible like yeah that. that's exactly actually what we're doing on, on okay. this new project and and demonic had that happen as well because the vfx company mm -hmm. was in the czech republic and i was in canada and normally i would be with them there but we we couldn't do that so um so that's exactly what happened i mean you know everything can hmm. be can be split apart and done remotely Gotcha. And you mentioned um, this stuff is being captured in real time. So you have like this sense. Uh, but I, I've also talked with a couple of VFX folks who are really intrigued by the idea of real time visual effects. You know, the idea that, yeah, what you're generating from your video card, you know, for a video game could be good enough to go in a movie. Is that something you've explored? Because the, the Oats stuff seems like you're you're almost getting there. Well, the, uh, I mean, not almost. Mm -hmm. Like this movie yep. does that. This is the first, this this okay. movie has okay. fifteen minutes of scenes rendered on graphics cards, which is insane. <laughs> and uh, and, wow. and okay. Oats, if you look at Adam from Oats, um, that is uh, entirely uh, rendered in real time. I mean, it's built it's built in mm -hmm. Unity. That's another example. We actually got that to work in VR too. Um, you could watch uh -huh. Adam in in VR. Yeah. Very cool. Like, um, you know, this seems like it's a, it's a lower budget project than what you've worked on in the past. Um, 
how does it feel like kind of it almost feels to me a little bit like district nine sort of like seeing that for the first time or your early shorts like going back to basics did you find that you know to be freeing to be away from the hollywood machine a little and you know flex your creative muscles i mean i don't really view it as as actively kind of distancing myself from hollywood it's more a case of Mm-hmm. Because I love the creative outlet that that appeared to be happening in in the Blair Witch Project and in Paranormal, right, right. it felt like with the pandemic, it was just a cool time to go off and do it. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't. I, I think you. I think you can be equally creative in in almost any situation as long as the film is set up correctly. It's you should be fine. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, I just reviewed for my movie podcast, you know, M night Shyamalan's new movie, which was also independently produced. And he went out and just shot that in the pandemic. It does seem like the restrictions of the pandemic has sort of like led to new bursts of creativity from some creators. I didn't didn't actually realize that with his film, um, that that's how it came about. That's cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to see it. Yeah. I'm really intrigued by him. And uh, yeah, you were talking about, you know, you're working on video game stuff as well. Can you give us a sense of what's going on there? Um, you know, I was one of those people really hoping to see the Halo project eventually. Um, but you think in video games in particular, like what are you dabbling in? Uh, so I'm, I'm like officially part of Godzilla, which is a new AAA studio that is based in Kiev and um, Frankfurt. And we're building, like I'm mm-hmm. on the development team building uh, a multiplayer shooter. So yeah, okay. so it's, it's like, I mean, it's pretty cool, you know. I, I'm part of the team, which I love, and I'm not as experienced <laughs> at all as anybody in there, considering I've made zero games. But I can I can bring an aesthetic uh, point of view to it, and they don't really need to explain that much. Just coming from a background in VFX, it's completely it carries over like right. perfectly. It's right. more what's what's much more of an unknown is the uh, is the the actual theory behind game design and and the architectural yeah. structure of what's happening behind the scenes um yeah interesting has uh you know i've liked i've liked everything you've been producing for the oats uh you know studios those shorts have has those experiences kind of like led you to this project or what you're thinking about for the games and will we see any of those expanded eventually yeah, I mean, one thing with Oats is that it shouldn't ever touch Hollywood at all. Like that, that is something right, that right. should be totally, I mean, it's actually closer to the games industry than it is to the film industry. If you think that mm-hmm. that game studios um, are, that they're, they're these studios that are filled with creative people and the entire product is made under one roof. You know, I wanted to try to do that with, with, with film. So uh, you'd have, the only example, the only examples I can think of are animation studios, but I wanted to do that with uh, right. live action. So, um, yeah, I have I have a lot of plans for Oats in, in future, but it's like it's it's a hundred percent separate from from Hollywood. But I, I do think that mm-hmm. the the kind of down and dirty, you know, shoot from the hip way that we made the the Oats stuff um, made the way that we made Demonic possible. Like I, I'm not sure that. You know, yeah, right, like pre-Oats, right. I probably would have tried something that felt really much more like paranormal activity, as opposed mm-hmm. to like, well, let's just let's just go wild and try to you know try to make it look bigger than it actually costs and and see what happens. Gotcha. Cool. Well, I know we're running out of time soon, so last question for you: What was your biggest challenge? You know, dealing with using volumetric capture in such a you know extensive way. I, I think you were saying this has the most volumetric footage uh, of any film ever released. So, 
you know, what were the issues that you guys had to deal with for that? There were many issues. Um, I mean, I think the mm-hmm. most mentally taxing is just shooting it because uh-huh. you're, you're trying to get emotional performances from the actors who are both awesome, like um, Carly Pope and, and uh, Natalie Bolt, but they're in constrained, horrific, you know, cage-like conditions. Right, which right. With, with like, not, not only do we have the, the larger four meter volume cage, but we also built these small hemispheres of like another cage of other multiple cameras to be brought in closer for higher resolution. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was probably the hardest. And the other thing is in the movie, they, she covers, you know, some distance, like she walks through her childhood home. Okay. So if you mm-hmm. imagine walking through your childhood home, you're walking a lot more than a four meter square. So you have to map out like from an aerial point of view, you have to map out like how many four meter grid squares do you need? as she moves through the house and how is she changing direction and which, you know, where are the doors and how is she opening doors and stuff? So there's like a math component and there's a performance component and it's all within this hyper difficult environment to shoot in. And then once it comes out of there, you still have eight months of work putting it together. So it's hard. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. So I'm looking forward to seeing the VR experience. If you guys can, you know, get that delivered. And uh, it also sounds like you have all this footage. I think a lot of people would be, would enjoy just like cutting some of this and choosing their own camera angles oh, and like totally. making their own short movies out of I, your I, movies. So I wonder if that would ever be possible. Completely. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, going back to Oats, like we released all of the um, 3D assets as DLC items on mm-hmm. on Steam. So uh, I love that idea. Uh, yeah, I'm totally will do that. Excellent. Thank you so Thanks, much, man. Neil. Yeah. All right, I'm going to pause the recordings here, but that was a great chat. Thank you so much. And sorry for, you know, all the 